Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're continuing our series called Israel's Greatest Philosopher. We've been saying too often we go through life assuming the answers to life's biggest questions. What gives life satisfaction? How can I find meaning? What's the point of it all? Ecclesiastes gives answers to these questions and it does so in a way that changes how we see our lives and our place in the world. Today we're talking about what happens when your goals are big and people are small. Consider the way that Michael Woodruff reflected on this topic as an American. He said, Americans are good at many things, but being friends and sharing life is not one of them. Our iconic figures, the cowboy, the police detective, always seem to ride alone. They can't be slowed down by a partner. Then he says, I first realized how narrowly most Americans view friendships when I was traveling with a Brazilian leader. He'd started a thriving seminary, planted a church, written books. The man makes things happen. As we were driving from one meeting to another, I said, hey, do you want a cup of coffee? He said, really? We have time? Wow, I'd be honored. That would be great. And I'm thinking, I don't know why he's so, th- so thrilled. I quickly pulled into a drive through for a coffee and he says, ah, you Americans, I feel so sorry for you. I thought you were asking to be my friend. I thought we were going to sit together and share life. Now, Canadians are different than Americans in many ways. We obsess over hockey, we eat poutine, and we say sorry way too much. But when it comes to the way that we prioritize speed and goals over relationships, I fear that we have more similarities to our American neighbors than differences. And we see the effects of that in our friendships. We see that in people's attitudes toward life groups and serving in the church. And we reap the fruit of that in our own relationships with our children. Solomon had led Israel to a level of military and economic success that was unparalleled. It was an area where fortunes could be made by entrepreneurial leaders. That meant it was a time of competition, fierce negotiation, and power plays. And unfortunately, it also meant that it was a time when relationships and people often took a backseat to personal ambition. In other words, it was a time very much like ours today. Perhaps reflecting on his own mistakes and regretting the culture he had influenced, Solomon plays the part of the philosopher and writes Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as a corrective. I'll read the passage in three sections, today starting with Ecclesiastes 4 verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Ecclesiastes 4, starting at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. This is the word of God. Now, this section gives us the first of the three consequences that the philosopher lays out. When your goals are big and people are small, you trade peace for success. 
you end up spending your life stepping on people on your way up the ladder. People get hurt and you feel empty. When your goals are big and people are small, you trade peace for success. Now, Israel was at a time where there were no wars to be fought and no enemies to be, to be feared. They should have enjoyed peace and harmony. But instead, verse 1 says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. The Israelites had known oppression and slavery under Pharaoh, and now God has freed them. They're set up the same oppressive systems themselves. He sees the tears of the oppressed and how isolated they are. But notice what he says of the oppressors. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. If someone's going to act like a dictator, sure, it's better to have power than not have it. But the oppressor and the oppressed are both miserable. When your goals mean more to you than the people in the way, people are going to get hurt and life's going to feel empty. That's why verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. He's forcing us to ask whether more is really the answer. Do we really need two handfuls of what striving can get us? Or can we be content with one handful and save some margin for rest and relationship? As a philosopher reflects on society as a whole, he sees greed and envy driving all of it. He says in verse 4, Then I saw all that toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. We look around us and we take our cues about the things we should buy and the trips we should take. If someone else has more, that means I don't have enough. But when envy's driving us, there never is enough. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, envy makes the bones rot. And the problem is, even if it's not our own envy that's driving us, greed and envy can drive employers, shareholders, and directors and we feel the pain of it. It's like the story about the person who was given an opportunity to ask the king for a favor. The king wanted to reward him, but knew that his envy needed to be dealt with. So he let him ask for anything, but he said that his rival would be given twice as much of whatever he asked for. So after thinking about it for some time, he asked that one of his eyes be plucked out. <laughs> That's what envy and greed do to us. That's what happens when our goals are big and people are small. So I think we need to ask ourselves whether we're part of the problem. Is your drive for more hurting the people that report to you at work? Does your ambition leave the people closest to you starving for relationship? Do the needs of the oppressed move you or even concern you? Does it affect the policies you contribute to or the way that you vote? When our goals are big and people are small, Someone gets hurt and you feel empty. You trade peace for success and nobody wins. But it's not just peace that we lose. When our goals are big and people are small, we trade satisfaction for riches. We get more, but it feels like less. When our goals are big and people are small, we trade satisfaction for riches. Follow us along as I read verses 7 to 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, the philosopher is picturing a person in verse 8 who can't stop working. They're driven by a hunger for more, and they're making huge sacrifices to achieve it. But they never stop to ask who the more is for. Watch again in verse 8. It says, He never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Is that a question you ever ask of yourself? If our answer is only ever me, we're going to feel the pain of dissatisfaction. As it says in verse 8, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Even when we say, I'm doing it for my family, the reality is it's often more about me. It's still about my image, my reputation, and my status. And when our goals are shaped by me and my, they're empty goals. We find meaning in life by sharing with others. But there are a couple different forms this can take. The philosopher is picturing a rich person who has no one to share with. You'll feel empty if you're driven for more, but don't think how you can share it. But the opposite is also true. Your your life will feel just as empty if laziness dictates your lifestyle and you never earn enough to share with others. There's no virtue or peace in a life devoted to long nights of video games and late mornings in bed. That's still living with me in the center. Now, verses 10 to 12 try to persuade us to focus on we instead of me. If there are two of you, you can pick each other up when you fall. If there are two of you, you can keep each other warm. There are two of you, you can defend each other against attack. Now, maybe if you're single and you've read that, you hear it as a challenge to put more effort into your search for a spouse. You realize you put a lot more effort into your goals than you do into your pursuit of a partner. And that's a fair application. But the philosopher is actually not specifically talking about that. There's no romance in any of these examples of we versus me. He's actually picturing a person in ancient Israel on a journey. There were dangerous pits that you could fall into, and the nights were cold. Robbers often hid along isolated routes looking for easy prey. And his message is, life is like that, so don't go it alone. Don't be so absorbed by your ambition that you don't have time for people. Don't get so caught up in your goals that you don't invest in real friendships. Don't rush so much that you never stop to enjoy coffee with a friend. And we need to hear that message. Our isolation is becoming a crisis. Both Britain and Japan have now appointed their own minister of loneliness. They've seen the research linking loneliness to increased rates of suicide, heart disease, dementia, and eating disorders. And they realized if they don't deal with the loneliness, those other problems are just going to get worse. Have you let your goals crowd out time for people? Have you gotten so so used to time alone during the pandemic that you just don't want to make the effort for people? 
Have you forgotten that the point of life is sharing, not achieving? When your goals are big and people are small, you trade peace for success. You trade satisfaction for riches. And finally, you trade love for power. People may fear you, but they'll never miss you. When your goals are big and people are small, you trade love for power. Follow along as I read the conclusion in verses 13 to 17. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's, king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is a classic rags to riches story. There's an old king who makes terrible decisions and who won't listen to anyone. But in his place, a poor nobody overcomes the stigma of prison and poverty and rises to the throne. He's as wise as his predecessor was foolish and his leadership is unparalleled. His kingdom stretches to distant lands. It reminds us of Joseph's rise to fame in Egypt, but also of any story where someone's rise to power or riches comes out in. It's the story of Steve Jobs or J.K. Rowling. It's the story of Oprah Winfrey or Mark Zuckerberg. It's the story of Slumdog Millionaire or Made in Manhattan. We love these stories because they fuel our ambition and our goals. But the danger in them is finding inspiration for our goals and not for our relationships. Those stories can easily make our goals big and people small. And unfortunately, that's the case with many of the hero stories we're attracted to. The philosopher wants us to think about life more deeply than that. He wants us to see life more clearly than that. And so after sketching out the ultimate rags to riches story for us, he adds in verse 16, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Do you hear what he's saying? You can go from the gutter to the palace. You can rise from poverty to riches. You can exceed your goals and achieve more influence than Bill Gates or Kylie Jenner. But if you sacrifice people for your goals, there'll be no one to remember you. If you stepped over people on the way to the top, people may fear you, but they'll never miss you. If you've never taken the time to love people, you'll miss the whole point of life, even as people are telling you that you've won the game of life. The crowds won't be there at your bedside as you're facing the end. And so trading love for power is always a losing deal. When your goals are big and people are small, life is like a race to catch the wind doesn't mean anything. Anyone notice that God's not mentioned once in the whole chapter? There's probably a subtle message there that this is what happens when we leave him out of our plans. Because from beginning to end, the Bible tells a story of a God calling us to relationship. He declares in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he provides a partner for the first person. He confronts the envy in Cain that led to the first murder. 
And when he forms a nation from the descendants of Abraham, he commands them in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And even though we failed at that again and again, God didn't give up on us and decide it would just be more efficient to go it alone, do it himself. Jesus came into this world and taught us in John 15, 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And when we still didn't get that, he laid down his life for us to prove to us what real love is. Even with that, we still struggle to get it right. Even as his followers, we're still tempted to treat our goals as big and people as small. So where do you face that temptation? Where do you need to respond to this message? Do you buy all your coffee at the drive-thru? Are you always in a rush? When was the last time you sat down to drink one with a friend and really listened? When was the last time you sat down with your family and really listened? Have you learned to find your contentment in Christ? Or is there an envy that drives you? Maybe it's someone else's envy that's driving you. Maybe your employer's drive for more keeps demanding more of you. Bring it before the Lord before people get hurt and you're left empty. Maybe where big goals and small people hits you is that you don't see the people who are hurting anymore. Solomon talked about the tears of the oppressed, but you don't feel anything for them. Ask God to help you to be a comforter. Who are you working for? Is it just about you? Ask God to make you a generous person. Look for ways to share. Invest your life in others and see the satisfaction that it can bring. Finally, how does this message line up with your faith? Have you reduced Christianity to a set of tasks to complete? Are you good with God as long as you put an appearance in on Sunday? Even today, are, have you thought, I've got a lot of things to do today. It'd just be more efficient if I watched online. That's treating the family of God like a Tim Hortons drive through If you're not in one of our life groups or prayer groups, make time for one. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and it isn't good for Christians to be alone either. If you're a child of God, you're called to be among the family of God. And as you make that time, remember Jesus' promise. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The God who calls you to gather with his people promises to meet you there as you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel the pull for more, the pull to achieve and accomplish. We see what other people have. Uh, we see the expectations. We see how fast everyone's running. And we assume that's just the way things have to be. Thank you, Father, for reminding us about relationship. Thank you that you don't call us to just run hard, run faster. Thank you that you see us for who we are, not for what we accomplish. Thank you that you invite us to rest in your presence. Father, I pray that you would give us 
your grace. Grace to make time for people, to make time for relationships. Help us to make time for a relationship with you and help us to make time for your for our relationship with your people. We pray for the compassion to see those who are hurting in a world that keeps putting tasks above people. Help us to be comforters. Help us to be those who pursue justice for those who are oppressed. And Father, we pray that as we invest in people, as we give ourselves to sharing, we pray that you would meet us there and help us to find the meaning and satisfaction that life as you designed it was intended to bring. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. I hope this message has helped you to think about what happens when your goals are big and people are small and giving you some ways that you can put your relationships back in the place where God has designed them to be. Today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.